The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. Thank you for joining NBN. In his fascinating and riveting new book, Soundtrack to a Movement, African-American Islam, Jazz and Black Internationalism, historian Richard Brent Turner tells a moving, though rarely discussed narrative of the intersection and cross-pollination between jazz and African-American Islam from the 1940s to the 1970s. How did Islam and conversion to Islam inform the lives, careers, and musical productions of prominent jazz musicians in this period? And how did jazz, spaces, and culture provide the fodder for important African-American Muslim movements and figures such as the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X? Turner addresses these and other questions with profound historical depth and analytical ingenuity. Over the course of this book, the reader learns about such enormously interesting themes as the landscape of African-American politics during the interwar period and beyond in major East Coast cities, especially Boston, the intimate relationship between jazz and the Ahmadiyya, the relationship between John Coltrane and Malcolm X, and the encounter of jazz with black internationalism. This lucidly written book will also animate great discussions in the classroom. Here is my conversation with Professor Richard Brent Turner. Uh, Richard, welcome uh, to the New Books Network. Absolute pleasure to host you on the New Books Network uh, to talk about this f- f- fantastic and phenomenal new book, Soundtrack to a Movement. And it's really an incredible new book that talks about a topic that is so fascinating, yet we don't know much about, but now we do, uh, thanks to your great book. And as I was saying, you know, before we went on air, that in some ways this uh, book um, uh, is uh, in a very welcome addition to your uh, classic by now, Islam and the African-American Experience, that connects some of those themes to very new uh, theaters and arenas. So really excited about this conversation. Uh, Richard, our first question on the New Books Network, it's a convention, is always biographical. So if I could ask you the question of, A, how did you become interested in this topic? How did you become a scholar, first of all, a historian? And uh, what led you to become interested in this particular topic that's the focus of uh, this new book? Well, um, you know, my road um, to becoming a scholar started at Boston University in the 1970s. I was an undergraduate student there. And um, I um, had access 
at Boston University to a lot of um, undergraduate courses in African-American studies and various um, disciplines. And um, I guess it was in my junior year when I decided to switch from uh, sociology to religion as my, um, as my major. And, um, and at the same time, when I became very interested in majoring in religion, I also became fascinated with um, the uh, jazz saxophonist, John Coltrane. I just begun listening to his music and really, I just was enchanted by the sound of his music and and um, and actually, during my senior year, uh, I had some very, very good teachers who um, were encouraging me to possibly think about um, you know, going on to graduate school and getting a PhD. But um, one of them had asked for a research paper uh, to read. So I had um, I've been doing a lot of research on John Coltrane, and I had written a, um, a a paper, an autobiography of John Coltrane's life. You know, it's an undergraduate paper that I think I had submitted for a um, uh, you know actually a course that I was sent to Harvard University to take on African American music because Boston University had a lot of courses in African-American studies, but the, they didn't have anything on African-American music. So I, you know, gave that um, paper on John Coltrane's autobiography to um, my teacher in African-American literature. And um, he, he was really pleased by the paper. He, he said he believed that this was a paper that was worthy of publication and that I should send it to, um, um, uh, Ann Southern, who was the editor of the um, Black Perspectives in Music, a peer-reviewed journal. And I was very surprised that within a couple of months, I received a letter from her saying that she wanted to publish the, um, you know, the paper on John Coltrane in the Black Perspective in Music. So that was kind of the beginning of my, uh, you know, my interest in, uh, in jazz as a, uh, as a scholar, and also uh, my interest in religion. And then when I graduated um, from, from BU, I went on to do a master's degree in African-American studies. And uh, that was a, a wonderful program. One of the few, um, you know, uh, master's degrees in African-American studies in the United States in the late 1970s. And at the same time, I was thinking about going on for a, um, you know, a, a PhD. Uh, originally, I thought that um, I would like to do a PhD in ethnomusicology because I still have this, um, this passionate interest in the life and the music of John Coltrane. And, um, you know, from where I grew up on the East Coast, I, I saw that the best ethnomusicology program was at Wesleyan University. However, when I contacted Wesleyan, they were pleased enough with my, um, you know, my academic uh, background for admission, but they mentioned 
that I would have to um, do uh, an audition on a musical instrument and have, con um, you know, um, have mastered um, a musical instrument in order to get into their PhD program in ethnomusicology. So that actually led me for a couple of years. Um, you know, this is um, actually while I was doing my work, master's degree in African-American studies. And after that, I, I worked for a couple of years as a high school teacher in the Boston public schools. But at the same time, I was, um, you know, taking, um, um, you know, classes and reading music at a community center in Boston. So I pretty quickly learned how to read music. And then for about a year and a half, I, I, I was studying the saxophone on Saturday afternoons with a, um, a jazz teacher at the New England Conservatory of Music. But, um, you know, I had a lot of, a lot of things going on in my life, a lot of interesting hobbies. Um, um, I was working full time as a public school teacher. I was interested in athletics, you know, playing in tennis tournaments and and um, after a couple of years, although I loved the saxophone, um, I, I never gave the saxophone the amount of time that, you know, that you really need to give it on a daily basis to, um, you know, to develop that type of um, competence on the saxophone, which would have gained me admission in um, Wesleyan's ethnomusicology program. So by about, um, 1980, I decided to apply to PhD programs in religion, and um, you know, and I did get into um, I did get into the um, PhD uh, program in religion at Princeton University, and um, and there, I, I think I um, I got some of the uh, background that eventually. Um, uh, gave me the intellectual skills to write soundtrack to a movement many, many years later, because I, um, you know, I had a part of my PhD program was in the anthropology department at Princeton, where I studied African religions. So I, I, I think that, um, you know, the background in African religions and um, the African diaspora that I got as a grad student certainly, um, you know, helped me to write soundtrack to a movement. However, my main area was African-American religions. And, um, you know, I, I was, I was very lucky, um, during my second year, actually it was my third year in that PhD program that Albert Rabito, uh, um, a very important scholar and, uh, in the field of African-American religion, who had written a groundbreaking book, Slave Religion. He came to Princeton and he's the person who directed my, my PhD dissertation. You know, because up to that time, um, you know, uh, one of my mentors was, uh, was John Wilson and he primarily did mainstream uh, uh, American Protestantism. So I had a lot of background in that, but until Rabbitoh came on board, I didn't have a mentor in African-American religion. And um, when I went on to start writing my uh, PhD dissertation, I then decided uh, that I wanted to do it on um, 
uh, Islam in the United States in the 1920s. And, um, and you know, I had a really good dissertation director in Al Rabito. And um, that dissertation, I, I believe, laid the foundation for some of the work and soundtrack to a movement because um, towards the end of my dissertation, which was, um, you know, I was looking at some African-American, um, um, Pan-African movements in the 1920s, like the Marcus Garvey Universal Negro Improvement Association and its relationship to some, um, you know, some African-American, early African-American Muslim communities in the 1920s, like the Morris Science Temple of America, which, had, you know, had already been studied a bit by Sirach Lincoln in his classic study, Black Muslims in America. But towards the end of the writing of the dissertation, I was told by uh, my advisors that I had a, you know, one of the final chapters that needed a lot of extra work and a lot of extra research. So it's, it's just very, very lucky that, um, you know, as a high school teacher at that time, during my last two years of, of, of writing my dissertation, I was a full time um, high school history teacher. So I told my principal that actually I need a week off because I need to go to the New York Public Library and do research. So I got that week off. And it was at New York Public Library that I found there were there, there were um, complete issues of journals published by the Ahmadiyya Muslim community from the 1920s to the present time. And when I went into those journals, I saw pictures of um, African-American converts to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in the 1920s. Um, there were stories about them. A number of them had been members of the Marcus Garvey Universal Negro Improvement Association. And so um, a chapter on the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and its links to um, African-American converts in the 1920s was a, a major contribution of my, you know, my PhD dissertation. And of course, that was, um, that, that Ahmadiyya Muslim community link is a, is a key to uh, soundtrack to a movement because I, um, you know, I have a lot of information in soundtrack to a movement about the jazz musicians in Dizzy Gillespie's big band. African-American musicians who were converting to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in the 1940s and the 1950s. So, so that's kind of um, the beginnings of my, you know, my background as a scholar. Terrific. Terrific. So I was thinking, Richard, perhaps we can begin uh, for those of our listeners who may not be familiar uh, yet with the book. And that's one of the main aspirations of this podcast to, you know, uh, make them familiar and encourage them then to get the book to do more close readings. I thought maybe it might be useful to begin with the title of the book, Soundtrack to a Movement, because that I think really nicely captures the key theme of this book, the intersection of jazz, African-American Islam, and a certain kind of, if I might put it, you know, a black politics that you're trying to capture in this book. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit about how the title connects with the key theme and argument that you pursue in this book, to give a broad sort of overview of the theme and argument through the title. Well, you know, I, um, my um, editors at New York University Press, after uh, I had finished the book and the book was in press, they pulled this title from, um, you know, from a chapter 
in the book Soundtrack to a Movement, and um, and and I agree that it's a very compelling um, title that is linked to my major argument in the book, because um, you know the book argues that from the late 1940s through the 1970s, Islam rose in prominence among Black Americans, in part because of the embrace of the religion of jazz musicians who were um, you know influential in creating. Um, a new kind of um, soundtrack that had religious and political dimensions. Some of these um, jazz musicians like Art Blakey, Ahmad Jamal, Max Roach, Abby Lincoln, Etta James, and McCoy Tyner converted to Islam, while others like John Coltrane, Duke Ellington, and Dizzy Gillespie, who never officially converted, were intrigued and impacted by the religion and um, and its philosophies and were influenced by its musical culture. Um, soundtrack to a movement um, asserts that Islam and jazz share common values, black affirmation, freedom and self-determination, which were key to the growth of Islam in African-American communities. And that it was jazz musicians, among others, who led the way in shaping encounters with Islam in the post-World War II period, as they developed a Black Atlantic coup. Um, also, I show in the book that Malcolm X had a great appreciation for jazz, having immersed himself in this musical tradition um, in Boston in the 1940s, as well as in New York City. And as a teenager, he danced the Lindy Hop in um, Boston's Ro Roseland Ballroom, and especially appreciated the work of Duke Ellington and Billie Holiday, who was a, a personal friend of his. And um, so the book, um, you know, looks at the um, religious and political landscape and of, of, of jazz and, um, you know, the soundtrack of a, of a movement, the, way, the ways in which jazz was linked to Pan-Africanism, uh, the civil rights movement, the black power movement from the 1940s to the, to the 1970s. And, and then actually the, um, you know, the um, hook for this soundtrack that weaves in and out of um, the different chapters of the book is, is the, um, the linkage between Malcolm X and John Coltrane. Because, um, you know, I start out with um, Malcolm X's um, uh, relationships to the jazz community as a teenager. And then, um, you know, later on in the 1950s, um, after he has um, unfortunately served time in, in Massachusetts prisons. Um, um, and um, he has been released from prison in the early 1950s, and um, and you know he joined the Nation of Islam um, while he was incarcerated. Uh, I also tell the story of how he began to do missionary work for the Nation of Islam in Boston, New York, Philadelphia, a number of major American cities, and then he was reaching out to jazz musicians for converts. Uh, later on in the book. I talk about um, John Coltrane's, um, you know, soundtrack, which uh, was based on sounds from uh, 
Muslim-majority countries, uh, sounds from India, actually sounds from across the third world that he incorporated in, in his music. And I also talk about uh, John Coltrane's life in Philadelphia uh, in the 1940s and early 50s when he was married to uh, Naima, his first wife, and she was a practicing Muslim. And um, just a little bit about his, um, his story at, the, at that particular time, because he was a very, very talented musician in the 1940s and 50s. Unfortunately, like a number of musicians in that period of time, he got addicted to alcohol and he got addicted to heroin. And um, his addictions um, caused Miles Davis, you know, the great uh, trumpeter to fire Coltrane from his band. And then, you know, living in um, a, a household that was run by a Muslim woman, um, John Coltrane, got off of drugs, cold turkey, in a, in a very, very short period of time. And, um, you know, and when he um, was released from his drug addiction with his, with his wife's help, he believed that God had spoken to him and, and that um, when he was um, playing, he was, he was praying. Um, and then, um, a little later on in the, in, in the book, I, you know, I bring Coltrane, um, back into the, uh, story because in the 1960s, of course, he composed the, you know, the, the great album, A Love Supreme that was very much influenced by um, his, um, his interactions with Muslim musicians in his band. It was very much influenced by the, the spirituality of Islam. You can hear that in the music. You can hear that in the, um, the prayers that he wrote, um, kind of, um, you know, it's a kind of spiritual poetry that's on the liner notes of A Love Supreme. But right around the same time that he was composing A Love Supreme, John Coltrane was also going to Malcolm X's speeches anytime that he could when Malcolm X was speaking in New York, in New York City. And, um, and although Coltrane never converted to Islam, he, he did say in a number of, of interviews that he definitely had um, thought about converting it to Islam, particularly in Philadelphia, but he just never got around to it. So I, I you know, I make this argument for this, um, this linkage between um, the soundtrack of Coltrane's music that reflected the, um, you know, the Pan-Africanism, the internationalism of the uh, civil rights movement and the black power movements in the 1960s um, uh, with um, Malcolm X's ideas about um, black and internationalism, especially when he left the Nation of Islam and made the Hajj to uh, Mecca and converted to Sunni Islam and developed a, a human rights um, um, organization, the Organization of Afro-American Unity. 
and um, and also I linked together um, um, in this chapter um, uh, uh, the uh, with the uh, the scholarship on Coltrane and Malcolm X. I, I, I linked that to observations by various jazz musicians from Miles Davis to um, Archie Shepp, who believe that, um, you know, that, um, you know, if what um, Coltrane was playing reflected what Malcolm X was, was saying about the third world and, um, you know, about um, the religion of Islam in his, in his speeches. And, and at the and at the same time, um, both of them said that they believed if um, Malcolm X had um, been a musician, he probably would have played like John Coltrane. So, you know, that's one that's one of the stories in in the book. But then there are a lot of other um, fascinating stories about jazz musicians who. Um, embraced Islam themselves, converted to the religion and, um, and expressed their spirituality through their music. People like Youssef Latif, who converted to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in the 19, in the 1940s and, um, and on uh, some of his early albums, such as Eastern Sounds um, in, the, in the 1950s, he attempts to recreate um, the um, sounds from the Middle East in his music. And you see, um, and um, on, on some of his album covers that he's wearing a kufi and he's, um, and then, um, you know, the way that he presents himself visually on, on his album covers, he is um, um, very proud that he is Muslim. And he's presenting that to the, um, you know, to the uh, musical world. Also, um, so many fascinating stories. I, I, I look at um, the um, iconic album by Max Roach and Abby Lincoln, who both converted to Sunni Islam, the We Insist Freedom Now Suite, which, um, um, they created in uh, the early 1960s, and um, and that album is very much linked to the um, you know to some of the most heroic faces of the of the civil rights movement. The uh, students who were sitting in trying to desegregate um, uh, restaurants in the American South is linked to the Freedom Riders, and um, and um, Max Roach, um, he actually converted to Islam. He's one of the great uh, jazz bebop drummers. He converted to Islam in Brooklyn when he was a teenager. Um, you know, he married Abby Lincoln, who he um, persuaded to convert to Islam. She had been a you know a, a jazz singer um, before she met uh, Max Roach, but she was kind of um, she was being cultivated to 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 be a, a kind of a sex symbol as a as a nightclub singer. Max Roach persuaded her that she could really perform, um, you know, uh, politically charged music 
And so we hear um, Abby Lincoln on the We Insist Freedom Now Suite um, recreating the sounds of, um, with her voice of, 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 of Black people who are enslaved in the United States who, who are suffering, uh, you know, beatings and um, on plantations. And then another part of the album, she is um, reciting all of the various um, African nations that had emerged from colonialism in the nineteen in the nineteen fifties, and she's doing this um, uh, with the um, with the drum beat of, um, of Babatun Olatunji, who was a, a very famous um, Nigerian drummer at that particular point in time. Um, you know, I look at the story of Etta James, a, um, a, a, a rhythm and blues and jazz musician in the 1950s and 1960s who converted, first of all, to the nation of Islam. Um, she had a, you know, a very um, um, friendly relationship with Malcolm X, who was um, kind of um, shaping her spirituality. And a little known story about Etta James after she converted to the nation of Islam. Uh, she had some early contacts with um, Muhammad Ali, who at that point in time, and I, I guess this would be the early 1960s, had not converted to the nation of Islam. He was still known as Cassius Clay. And so she, she's one of the um, first people who tried to convert Cassius Clay to the nation of Islam. Um, you know, her story is very fascinating because um, eventually she left the Nation of Islam um, where um, she had changed her name to James Seta X and she converted to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. So these are just a few of the very fascinating stories that I, I, I tell in this book. Wonderful. Now, the setting of the book um, is major cities of the Northeast and especially Boston. And the first part of the book spends a lot of time, you spend a lot of time sort of charting the social, political landscape of the Northeast in this time period, sort of from the interwar period onwards, that made that a particularly fertile place for this kind of, you know, intersection of jazz, Islam, and uh, liberationist politics. So I was wondering if you could just say briefly a bit about that landscape, that historical moment and context uh, that in which you situate the larger sort of movement that you describe in the later parts of the book. Yes, I'm happy to do that. I, you know, I, I, I start um, the book off in Boston because, you know, Boston in 1940 is where Malcolm X escaped to, you know, his, um, he came from a family of, um, of militant Pan-Africanists. They were organizers, his mother and father, for Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association, which was an anti-colonial colonialist movement in the 1920s. You know, it promoted pride in blackness and uh, you know linkages to the um, to Africa. You know, a very revolutionary movement in its time and its and its model was up. You mighty race, you can accomplish what you will. And unfortunately, um, um, Malcolm X's father, who was also a Baptist um, preacher, 
was murdered by white supremacists in Michigan because he, you know, he was an organizer for the Universal Negro Improvement Association and wouldn't back down from his from his politics. So in 1940, um, young Malcolm X, he's about 15 years old. Um, he moved from from Michigan to live with his half sister Ella Collins in um, Boston, Massachusetts. And um, it was in Boston uh, that Malcolm X um, had his um, his first um, very deep interactions with um, the jazz communities. Also, at at the same time, um, Malcolm X um, had this continuation of the um, of the uh, the Marcus Garvey Universal Negro Improvement. Um, um, Association in his in his Boston family because his his sister Ella Collins had married a member of of the UNIA who was um I, you know he was um, uh, Afro Caribbean he was a doctor in in Boston and um, and so I I also show that um, Malcolm X had linked himself in the jazz clubs to Malcolm Shorty Jarvis, who was a, he was a young professional uh, musician who played with bands like Duke Ellington when um, he sat in with them when, when they came through Boston. And it's very interesting that it was in Boston where both Malcolm X and uh, Malcolm Shorty Jarvis were first introduced to Islam. They were introduced to the religion by an Indian missionary um, from the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, who um, you know he who was a, a, a very talented uh, pianist, I guess classical pianist, and um, he lived in the um, same community that Malcolm X and Shorty Jarvis lived in, Roxbury, in the 1940s and invited, first of all, Shorty Jarvis to his house to impress him with the way that he played the piano. And then he began tutoring Malcolm Shorty Jarvis on Islam. And eventually, um, uh, uh, Malcolm Shorty Jarvis invited Malcolm X to, um, to, the, to this missionary's um, home, and they both were learning about Islam. Unfortunately, all that got interrupted in the mid 1940s because um, both of them, you know, they were unfortunately involved in theft. They were arrested. They went to um, prison in Massachusetts, and that's where, um, you know, in the um, while they were incarcerated in Massachusetts, that um, both of them converted to um, to the nation of Islam. And then, of course, I. I, I shift the, the focus of the book to New York City because um, New York City, of course, is the place where many of the great jazz musicians in the world lived because that's, you know, that's where um, many of the, the great jazz clubs were. And it's also a place that is linked to Malcolm X's, um, you know, um, teenage years because, uh, you know, he very quickly, once he uh, was in, in Boston on the East Coast, he began traveling um, to New York City. He was working for the, um, 
you know, the trains that ran between Boston and New York. He was working um, as a person who served sandwiches. And, um, and so there I, 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 I shift to Harlem, of course, as this great um, um, Pan-African um, community on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And of course, that's where um, Marcus Garvey had his headquarters in in the nineteen in the nineteen twenties. It's the location of the Harlem Renaissance, and um, it's also the place where Duke Ellington lived. It's the place where W. E. B. Du Bois, um, one of the founders of the National Association for Advancement of Colored People, which was a, a great anti lynching civil rights organization, he lived there during this period of time. And um, so New York City is a, is a um, you know, one of the major um, um, urban sites throughout the, you know, throughout the book, because we, um, you know, we find that um, um, John Coltrane, whose um, story is linked to Philadelphia, you know, I go there and show that, um, there was a thriving jazz community in Philadelphia, and there was also a thriving um, African-American Islamic community in Philadelphia at, at the same time. And Coltrane uh, moved to Philadelphia from North Carolina in the, 19, in the 1940s and lived there into the 1950s. But eventually he did move to New York City. Many of the, um, just about all of them, moved to New York City. So there are just so many uh, fascinating stories of uh, jazz musicians who were influenced by Islam, who who lived in New York City. Art Blakey, the um, jazz convert to um, Islam, uh, he com- converted to um, Ahmadiyya Muslim community. He lived in New York City. Um, he founded the, the Jazz Messengers which actually was um, initially um, a group of jazz musicians who had converted to Islam. You know, it had, it had um, over the years, many great jazz musicians in the group. They weren't all Muslims, Muslims but um, Art Blakey and his apartment in Manhattan was doing missionary work for the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, encouraging uh, numerous jazz musicians to convert to, um, you know, to Islam in his in his uh, apartment building. And um, Dizzy Gillespie, of course, is is living in um, in New York City, and then it is in New York City that um, many of the great big bands played their music. Um, um, and, you know, Duke Ellington was one of the great big band leaders there. But then there's a major shift in jazz in New York City um, in the 1940s from the big band music to bebop, which is, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a different, uh, more intellectually oriented form of, of jazz with um, a, a faster sound, a fascinating Sound and that had many linkages to um, you know to to African Americans who converted to Islam. That is bebop, and bebop was invented in New York City. 
um, behind the scenes of, you know, different jazz musicians um, engaged in jam sessions after they played in, in the clubs. And um, so um, um, primarily the book is, is, um, is, is focusing on these major East Coast cities and um, the um, soundtracks that came out of these cities that were linked to the, um, you know, to the, um, the ascendancy of, 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 of Islam in African-American communities in these same cities, as well as across the United States. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one, one theme that is a major theme of the book that you've already spoken quite a bit about, but I think it deserves more commentary, is the relationship of Malcolm X to jazz. And one of the things that you show really beautifully in the book is that um, that this is a relationship that continued at different stages of his life uh, before going to prison. He would attend you know, jazz performances, and then you show that when he joined the Nation of Islam, that these very jazz spaces then became an important recruiting ground uh, for him as well. Uh, so could you tell us a bit more about this very interesting relationship of jazz and Malcolm that I don't think uh, has been explored in much depth before, and you do quite a fascinating job and fantastic job of that. So could you speak a bit about that theme? Yes, you know, um, jazz is um, very, very important for Malcolm X, um, uh, particularly uh, uh, while starting out in the World War II period because he was a zoot suitor. And the zoot suitors were, um, you know, were um, jazz fans. They were young people during World War II. They had a counter-cultural movement because they were wearing... Um, you know, um, kind of um, clothing um, that marked them out as um, as um, dancers of of the Lindy Hop and and um, and just a minute, I'm um, trying to uh, get back. Uh, okay, because my you know, if I don't if I don't touch my my mouse on my computer, it kind of turns off at a certain point in time. Brain turns off. But anyway, the zoot suitors were really important during World War II because they were wearing this clothing, these long uh, suit jackets, uh, um, these um, hats with feathers in them. They were some of the greatest jazz dancers of the Lindy Hop, and um, and during World War II, they were primarily African American and um, Lat- Lat- Latino and Latina um, teenagers and and young people. And um, unfortunately, the zoot suitors were marked out um, for persecution in different parts of the country. You know, there were zoot suit riots and. Los Angeles in the 1940s among, um, you know, uh, Mexican-American youth who were uh, connoisseurs of jazz. They actually were beaten by U.S. service um, people in, um, in Southern California, beaten brutally. Their, their clothes were taken off of them in the streets. And, um, but Malcolm X was, was a zoot suiter. And, um, so that was um, 
that was very much a part of his youth and uh, and it was a part of his um, it encouraged his resistance strategies to to serving in the American military during World War II. And um, and then, you know, when he um, he got into prison and unfortunately, you know, he was in there for a number of years in, in, in Massachusetts and and there he converted to the Nation of Islam because his brothers and sisters were um, um, sending him letters and they were converting to the Nation of Islam themselves. Malcolm X, once he converted, you can see in his letters, he was trying to write letters to um, his friends in the jazz world um, to get them interested in Islam. You know, he was still in prison. Um, He actually didn't have um, their home addresses, so he was sending letters to various jazz clubs and bars (laughs) where he had hung out and had danced as a jazz fan, hopefully to connect to, um, to some of his, um, you know, some of his comrades in the, in the jazz world in the 1940s before he had um, been incarcerated. And then, you know, when he got out of prison and in the 1950s, um, you know, he, he uh, lived with his brother in the Detroit area and his brother was already a Nation of Islam minister. And eventually he became a minister for the Nation of Islam. And Elijah Muhammad saw that um, he had these, um, he had a fascinating um, speaking ability because on the one hand, um, Malcolm X um, had uh, re-educated himself in prison. He had taken all types of correspondent courses and foreign languages. And um, of course he had, converted to Islam. So he was reading Islamic literature. He was reading many different types of books in the prison libraries in Massachusetts. And um, at the same time, Malcolm X knew how to speak the street lingo. So he he was the perfect person to, um, you know, for Elijah Muhammad to send to various cities from Boston to New York to Philadelphia. Um, to, um, you know, to find new converts to the Nation of Islam who were young people who were still involved in going to jazz clubs. And and Malcolm X was able to get a lot of youth converts. And a lot of it had to do with his, um, you know, not just with his um, spirituality, which was extremely important, and his intelligence and and his... um, you know, his political background in the Universal Negro Improvement Association, Pan-Africanism, but he was also able to identify himself with, um, you know, with with youth who were in jazz clubs and um, dancing and involved in different ways and, you know, um, the street life who wanted to get out of that, you know, that, that cycle of drinking and drugs and, um, you know, very, very fast, self-destructive um, activities. And, um, you know, the little known fact also is that the Nation of Islam, although it forbade, um, you know, drinking and, you know, drug consumption and dancing and, you know, going to um, clubs, the Nation of Islam 
sponsored many different, um, you know, bazaars and concerts that um, where they hired jazz musicians to play. I was really fascinated by that. There's a lot of evidence about that. So that um, um, I'm, I'm sure that Malcolm X had an, had an impact on that of, um, you know, the, the Nation of Islam utilizing the soundtrack of jazz musicians to, um, you know, to in, in their very street bazaars and and their, um, you know, their major um, their major events to recruit people to convert to their um, to their religious movement. So, um, you know, jazz seemed to be a, a constant in Malcolm X's life. Although, of course, you know, once he um, converted to Nation of Islam and 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 also, you know, once he left the Nation of Islam and he became a, uh, you know, a, uh, a Muslim imam. After, that is after after he had uh, made his hajj and, and uh, you know, he had, he had taken courses on, on Islam and Arabic at Al Azhar University and became certified as a as a um, you know as a Sunni um, Muslim imam. Of course, he had to play down. His um, his linkages with the you know the musical world, but but um, you know those linkages were always there. And finally, you know, I've um, I don't have any evidence for this, but um, you know there is there is certainly very hard evidence that um, John Coltrane was going to Malcolm X's speeches in New York City anytime that he had a chance to, because um, Malcolm X's second wife, Alice Coltrane, has been interviewed, and she has said that. Um, I, can't, I can't believe, although there's no hard evidence for this, that um, Malcolm X um, and, uh, and John Coltrane did not meet one another at some one point in time when Coltrane was attending Malcolm X's um, you know, speeches, and, and he actually said that he was very impressed by the man he was impressed by his message. Now, the final question I want to ask you, Richard, has to do with um, what I would call sort of the last uh, uh, term in your, uh, uh, um, the second part of your title, which is African-American Islam, Jazz and Black Internationalism. And you show in this book that this is not only a U.S. story, but rather many of these jazz artists and, 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 and musicians and performers uh, really also mobilized a very powerful uh, language and symbols of uh, a certain black international politics uh, uh, that was current in, you know, what we today would call global south societies uh, uh, and, and these third world uh, political movements of the time. Could you speak about this aspect of your book a bit, the, the internationalist, uh, the black internationalist uh, motif of uh, jazz and Islam? Well, you know, this is very, very important because there, uh, you know, there's been an international um, motif in, in, uh, in African-American culture, definitely since the 1920s with the Marcus Garvey Universal Negro Improvement Association, because that was a global pan-African uh, movement. And it had, um, and of course, Malcolm X was raised in that movement and it had chapters um, in the United States, in Europe, in Africa, it was a global movement. But, you know, in my study, the term black internationalism, 
refers to a global black religious consciousness and interconnected re religious movements that led African-Americans to think universally about their freedom struggles. As the middle of the 20th century approached, I tried to show that um, you know many African-Americans began to see themselves in a larger global context as part of the worldwide liberation struggles of Blacks in the African diaspora and Africa, and also sometimes in solidarity with the oppositional struggles of people of color who were not Black. So there's an element, an aspect of my book where I talk about the, um, you know, the, um, the U.S. government's, um, U.S. State Department's programs send jazz musicians, and most of them were African-American, to the third world to perform, beginning in the 1950s, and, and, and this continued into the 1960s. And here, you know, many of the um, famous jazz musicians, um, great jazz musicians, people like Dizzy Gillespie and Duke Ellington were traveling. To, um, to Muslim majority countries to perform in concerts in, in Senegal and Pakistan and Egypt in various places. And the U.S. State Department started this program, um, um, you know, um, during, the, during the Cold War, because of course, um, the United States was facing a lot of criticism from the Soviet Union during the Cold War because of its Jim Crow policies where, you know, Blacks were continuing to be lynched in record numbers in the 1950s. And, um, you know, and Black people did not have civil rights um, in the United States during that decade. Um, and um, they were still legally segregated in, um, you know, in public spaces um, um, through the, um, you know, the Plessy versus Ferguson Supreme Court decision, which had mandated, um, you know, racial segregation in the United States in the 1890s. And so the United States believed that by sending these famous black jazz musicians, not all of them were black, but most of them were to the third world, that they could, um, you know, they, can soft, they could soften this very hard image of anti-black racism in the in the u.s because u.s government um, officials in the state department were very much aware that um you know in a global context their um their treatment of their black citizens was um, was being compared to apartheid in south africa and um so this is a part of that black internationalism that um that um, many famous jazz musicians utilize to reach out to um, you know to um, musicians, indigenous musicians in the third world, because although um, the U.S. State Department had these you know they had uh, programs that they wanted the jazz musicians to follow when they went to these various countries to perform. Um, you can see the photographs, which I have examined at the Smithsonian Archives of jazz musicians like Dizzy Gillespie, as well as Duke Ellington, um, 
and uh, Louis Armstrong, you know, branching out um, beyond the State Department, um, you know, program locations to meet indigenous musicians, to learn their, um, you know, their musical instruments, the instruments that people are playing on the streets and places like Pakistan and India. And, um, and there were exchanges um, between these jazz musicians um, about um, the liberation struggles that were going on in the United States, the civil rights liberation struggles, as well as, um, you know, the jazz musicians getting a sense of the anti-colonial struggles that were still going on in different parts of, of the third world or as well as in countries that, um, you know, particularly African countries that had recently emerged from colonialism and were, you know, were, were now independent uh, nations. So this um, Black internationalism I see playing out in a, in a big way um, in many um, musicians' um, soundtracks particularly John Coltrane. He seems to have been the uh, jazz musician who had um, many um, fascinating interactions with, um, you know, with Islam in his personal life, as well as um, with musicians who played in, in his band, who had internationalist, um, you know, religious affiliations. Because of course, um, um, you know, he played with, um, um, McCoy Tyner, who um, was his pianist for um, for many years, he was the pianist who played on a Love Supreme. And McCoy Tyner was from Philadelphia and converted to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community when he was a teenager, and he was married to a Muslim woman himself. And um, you know, in Coltrane's music, I argue that you know we are hearing a soundtrack from the third world. Because, you know, if you listen to, um, to my favorite things where Coltrane is um, playing the soprano saxophone, he has taken a Rogers and Hammer, Hammer um, you know, uh, uh, song, popular music song, and he's giving it a kind of an, uh, an, an Indian musical sound. And he's doing that on purpose. Um, you know, in the Love Supreme, you certainly can, um, you can hear the black internationalism in the, um, in the, in the music because um, Yusef Latif, who, um, you know, there are a lot of great interviews now published, uh, you know, with Yusef Latif, who uh, was, he was one of the early, um, converts to Islam among the great jazz musicians. He was a very, very close friend of John Coltrane and particularly his first wife, uh, who was Muslim, Naima. And Yusuf Latif makes the assertion that, um, you know, that John Coltrane was um, very much influenced by the spirituality of, 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 um, of Islam when he, um, composed a love supreme and he he basically is saying that that um when you're listening to a love supreme and also when you are reading the you know the the prayer 
that John Coltrane writes. It's a very, very complex prayer about purification and transcendence. Um, um, uh, you know, he's making the case that John Coltrane was um, was very much influenced by Islamic poetry, and you can hear that influence in a, in a love supreme. And and actually, um, uh, there are a number of scholars who who have argued, and um, and um, they've argued that in the part of a love supreme, and this is the only album where you actually hear John Coltrane, um, um, you know, kind of um, speaking or chanting. There's an album where there's a part of the album where he's reciting with his musicians a love supreme. A love supreme. A number of scholars have made the case, and of course, they are Muslim. That Coltrane is actually reciting "Allah supreme, Allah supreme, Allah supreme." So there are so many um, instances of uh, jazz musicians in, in this book who were very, very deeply influenced by by. Um, by black internationalism. And finally, um, you know, um, Youssef Latif um, in, in an interview tells us that actually in the last year of his life, um, Coltrane didn't know that he was going to die in 1967. He died very suddenly that um, Coltrane had planned um, a series of concerts with um, Youssef Latif and um, with Babatun Olatunji, and they were going to play at, at, in Carnegie Hall. It had already been booked, and the music was going to focus on, um, you know, the music and the spirituality that came from the third world, and that actually um, Coltrane had, had already, um, you know, and this is... Um, just weeks before he passed away, he had, he had already planned a trip to spend significant time in Africa with the Nigerian drum, drummer, uh, um, Babatun Olatunji. And so I, I see very much in John Coltrane's music, this black internationalism. And, you know, one of his last albums that he recorded is a concert in Japan where, you know, Coltrane's band, they, you know, they, they played a series of concerts in Japan. And um, it's very fascinating that when Coltrane landed in Japan, the first thing that he wanted to do was to go to the sites where the atomic bomb had been dropped in Japan because he wanted to feel the, the, you know, the spiritual vibes of the people who had suffered, who had been killed by the atomic by the atomic bombing and um, that the Americans had had done during world during World War World War Two. So um, there's a quite a bit about this theme of black internationalism in 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 this book, and of course, um, black internationalism is uh, a major theme as the civil rights movement begins to evolve and um, you know in, into a a black power movement uh, in the in the uh, late 1960s that is focusing on African Americans' um, linkages um, politically, 
and um, creatively, artistically, um, to the third to the third world, and to um, and to um, you know particularly to Africa, but actually to anti-colonial struggles that are going on across the third world. That um, you know many African American political leaders and ordinary African Americans both believed were parallel struggles to the civil rights um, struggles and the, um, you know, the embrace of um, the black power movement by African-Americans in the United States. And so this music, this soundtrack um, that um, jazz musicians produce that has these, you know, that resonates with, um, with um, the, um, the significance of Islam in the African American community, um, is a part of the zeitgeist of the um, the African American struggle for freedom, particularly in the uh, 1960s into the 1970s. Soundtrack to a movement: African American Islam, Jazz, and Black Internationalism by Professor Richard Brent Turner. Published by New York University Press in 2021. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Richard, not only for writing this exquisite uh, and important new book, but also for so generously and extensively sharing your thoughts about it. And I'm sure it will spur many listeners to pick this book, read it, learn from it, and teach it in various seminars, uh, undergraduate and graduate. Thank you so much for your time today, Richard. And thank you. It was a, it was a great pleasure to speak to you. So this was my conversation with Professor Richard Brent Turner about his wonderful new book, Soundtrack to a Movement. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the NBN, the New Books Network. Please join us next time for another fresh episode of the New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Shir Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to NBN.